Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. Our Sunday services have now moved online and you can tune in every week for worship, prayer and our weekly sermon by going to christchurchlondon.org forward slash church hyphen at hyphen home. We're now going to hear the talk from this week's Church at Home service. Today's reading is from Colossians 1 verse 24 to Colossians 2 verse 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am supplementing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in behalf of his body, which is the church. I was made a minister of this church according to the commission from God granted to me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which had been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what the wealth of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles is, the mystery that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every person and teaching every person with all wisdom, so that we may present every person complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labour, striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have in your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and that they would attain to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will deceive you with persuasive arguments, for even though I am absent in body, I am nevertheless with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your orderly manner and the stability of your faith in Christ. Hello, Christchurch London. My name is Ed, and today I'm going to be continuing the series on Colossians, which Catherine started last week. It is such a joy and a privilege to be speaking with you today. Although I am definitely speaking on the text from Colossians, which was read out, I think I'm actually going to spend most of my time today speaking about page two and three of the Bible, which are in the book of Genesis. And the reason that I want to do that is because I think what Paul's doing in the passage that that was read out just before I started speaking um, is the the problems of the human heart and the problems of the nature or um, the problem of how human beings can be intimate with God, how they can pursue union with God, which are introduced in the first few pages of the Bible. What Paul is doing in the letter to the church in Colossae is he's saying that the answer to those, uh, that the center of reconciliation lies in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. But if we don't understand quite how um, quite the nature of the problem, then it's very difficult to understand the solution that Paul proposes in, um, in, in, the, in the passage from Colossians that we're looking at today. But doing that, I think then we can move quite, quite quickly, actually, um, just looking at two of the key passages in, in Colossians and then using a third as to kind of tie it all together. And we can then move through it quite quickly. Um, and it also, Genesis, at least to me, is so piercing to the human heart and captures kind of such truths that it really draws out elements of application, which I think are really important. Um, and so we'll finish by looking at like, what does this mean for my life. Okay, so to dive into 
Genesis, page two. Genesis page one, just to give some context, um, talks about the creation of the cosmos. Creation is this good place. And then in Genesis chapter two, page two of the Bible, the camera pans to look at the creation of human beings. Now, all of creation is good, but there is this place that God marks out called Eden, which in Hebrew literally means the light. And in that place, God plants a garden and then places the human beings in the garden. And within that, there's, a set, there's this beautiful sense that God intends creation um, to be this place of delight for human beings. And you just have this sense of God's caringness towards human beings. And then specifically, um, in the centre of this garden, there are two trees which are given names. Let's read Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 to 9, just to look at that in a bit more detail. So the text says, The Lord God planted a garden towards the east in Eden, and there God placed the human whom God had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused every tree to grow that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. So what we have is we have all of creation is good. And then within creation, we have this place called Eden. Then within Eden, this place called the garden. And then at the center of this garden are two trees, one of life and one of the knowledge of good and bad. And within this image, a command is issued. Verses 16 to 17 of the same chapter read that the Lord God commanded the human, saying, from any tree of the, no of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good or bad you shall not eat, for on that day you will surely die. Okay. So often we spend quite a lot of time looking at the negative element of that command, what is prohibited. But I think the most important thing I want to draw is actually the sense of abundance with that. There is so much possibility given to human beings in the garden. But also really importantly, one of the trees in which human beings can eat of is the tree of life. So, so that begs a question, at least to my mind, what does it mean for human beings to eat from the tree of life? And what is, what is the biblical text trying to communicate when it makes that a possibility? So in order to do that, um, what I want just to draw out is that the way that Eden and the garden and really all of creation is designed um, on page two of the Bible mimics the way that God's temple later on in the story is designed. So let me just say a couple of words about introduction and then I will draw out the kind of the structural similarity between Eden, the garden, and the temple. So first is the first two human beings, the two in the garden are called Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve have a, have a descendant called Jacob. God gives Jacob another name, which is Israel, and Jacob becomes the founder of the nation of Israel, which are the people that God chooses through which to bring all of creation back into union with God. Now, one of Jacob or Israel's descendants is a man named Solomon, who is king over Israel, and he builds God a temple. Now, this temple is in a mountain city called Jerusalem. So this is where the structural similarities between, um, the, between the garden and the temple start to build in. Okay. 
So just to break it down, um, you have Jerusalem, and then within that you have the temple. Within the temple, you have the holy place, which is the main room, and then within the main room, the holy of holies. Now, Eden and the garden are structured in a very similar way. You have the whole of creation, and then you have Eden, which is the place of delight. Within Eden, you have the garden, and then right at the center of the garden, you have the tree of life. So the tree of life occupies the same space in the temple as the Holy of Holies, where God's presence is said to dwell. The Holy of Holies is like the hot spot of God's presence in creation. And so drawing the reason why I think there is this structural similarity is the way that we're meant to read the tree of life is the tree of life is the hot spot of God's presence um, in creation. Going even further, you could say it is God's presence in creation. And the fact that human beings are permitted to eat from it, um, it is meant to emphasize the depth of intimacy that human beings at this point have with God. Just to, to emphasize that the kind of the eating metaphor, in eating the fruit of the tree of life, human beings literally have the presence, the fruit enter into their body. And there is a sense in which that fruit, just as food does, sustains the human person. Going even further, there's a sense in which it replenishes and makes up their body. Such is the sense of intimacy that is depicted in the Hebrew Bible. And what's more than that, this is the intended state. This is how human beings are designed to operate with that kind of intimacy with God. Okay, so we're on page two, two of the Bible so far. Unfortunately, that vision of intimacy doesn't last any longer. And then on page three of the Bible, we have a sense of deviation from God's intended purposes. Into the garden, uh, slips a serpent who is the kind of a personification of evil within Genesis. This serpent tempts the, the human beings to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and bad, the tree which the human beings were prohibited from eating from. And in doing so, there's a sense in which human beings um, determine what is good and bad for themselves. And just the one thing I want to pick up, that Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Just the key thing I wanted to draw out is in defining good and bad for themselves, um, wisdom is at stake. And wisdom is something which we're going to pick up again when we look at Paul's letter. So what happens from this? Human beings are then separated from the tree of life. They're separated from the hot spot of God's presence and they're sent into exile from the garden and you'll remember God's warning that if human beings were to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and bad they would surely die and then shortly after this happens in the next page of the bible page four um Adam and Eve's descendants their two sons um one kills the other we have the bible's first murder so the kind of the symbolic meaning of this is that when human beings decide what is good and bad for themselves, rather than seeking wisdom from God, death enters into creation. So not only are human beings separated from the presence of, from God's presence by being kind of removed from the garden of evil, if it was the garden of Eden, this place of intimacy with God, but so is death introduced into creation. But amidst this, there is a prophetic hope 
prophesied. Genesis chapter 3 verses 14 to 15 say this. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, I will make enemies of you and the woman and of your seed and her seed. Your seed, sorry, he shall crush you on the head. That is the woman's seed will crush the serpent on the head and you, the serpent, shall bruise him on the heel. We'll say more about that in just a moment. But I just wanted to give a quick summary of where we've gone. So we've got two trees in the garden. One tree, the tree of life, represents intimacy and union with God's presence. The other tree represents human beings deciding what is good and bad for themselves. And this leaves us with two questions through which really we can read the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible, the two guiding questions become, how do we gain access again to intimacy with God's presence? And the second one becomes, who will crush the head of the serpent? Who is the woman's seed that will, um, that will crush the head of evil and in doing so restore access to the tree of life? And there is a pun here, because seed can mean offspring, it is the woman's offspring who will uh, crush the head of the serpent, the personification of email. But it is also the woman's seed who will then plant again the garden and usher in intimacy with the tree of life. And throughout the biblical text, there are a number of different candidates for who this seed might be. At one time, it looks like it might be Moses. Another time, it looks like it might be David, or even Solomon, the king who built the temple. But all of these candidates ultimately fail. And instead, the New Testament shows that that prophesied seed is Jesus. And not only is that seed fully human, fully the offspring of the woman, that seed is also fully God. That was what Catherine brought out so clearly in her message last week. And Paul is picking this up and Paul is saying that through the seed, through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, union with God's presence is established again. And not only is union with God's presence established again, but so through it, human beings might become wise. Human beings might be brought to completion. The plan that God always had for creation might again, is again possible. So that's how we should read Colossians. And hopefully that just gives some framework and an overview of some of the kind of questions that Paul is seeking to offer. Cool. So what I'm going to do is just in, I'm going to read um, two kind of passages which pick up on two of these themes from our, our kind of extract from Colossians. And then after that, I'm going to read a third which pulls this all together. Then we're going to get to application. Okay. Colossians chapter 1. Uh, verse 25 and following reads like this. And what I'm going to do is I'll just read out the, the verse and then I'll give some interpretation. Okay. So Paul says, I was made a minister of the church according to the commission from God granted to me for your benefit so that I might fully carry, carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which had been hidden for the past ages and generations but now has been revealed to his saints, to whom God will to make known what the wealth of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles is, the mystery that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, 
So like, like I said, really dense, like really thick passage and, and potentially, well, actually is really hard to understand. Um, first thing I just want to pick up on is what we see is two repetitions of mystery here. And I just wanted to like hone in on that and say, what exactly does Paul mean when he says mystery? So the work of New Testament scholar Marianne May Thompson has been really helpful here. And I just want to read a quote from her. She writes this. In the first century Jewish context, mystery refers to something that is hidden with God, stored up in heaven until such time as God chooses to disclose it. Specifically, what was hidden for generations, namely a plan to bring salvation to all the world, is now disclosed and made known in Christ. So what Marianne May Thompson is saying, and probably more, or definitely more importantly, what Paul, I think, is saying, is that there has been this plan through which to restore human beings into intimacy with God through the work of the seed, the offspring of the woman who will crush the head of evil. So this wasn't known to previous generations. He writes that, which had been hidden from past ages and revelations, but this mystery, this plan has been revealed to God's saints, by which Paul simply means the members of the church. And then he goes on to say, God's saints, to whom God will to make known what the wealth of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles is. So Paul is saying not by Gentiles, Paul means those who are not Jewish. So Paul is saying um, not only is the repercussions, the reconciliation accomplished by the offspring of the woman, that is by Jesus, um, relevant for those who are Jewish, that is the people of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, but it's also relevant for all nations because that was always God's plan to use Israel and the offspring of Israel um, as a people through which to bring reconciliation with all peoples and all creation. And then he's re he becomes more explicit to say, the mystery that is the plan that, um, that God has is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what does he mean? So Paul is saying that um, the way in which God plans to accomplish the reconciliation of human beings with God, to allow human beings again to eat from the tree of life, is through Christ, through making a way for Christ to be so intimately um, united with human beings that we can talk about Christ in us. And the, the two things are striking. One, the kind of the tree of life imagery, just as we can eat from the tree of life in on page two of the Bible and the fruit enters into us. So Paul can say Christ is in you. And also the temple imagery, which if we remember was a was an image of the tree of life. So God dwelt in the temple. Paul says elsewhere that um, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Our body becomes a place where God again can dwell, such as the intimacy um, of, the, of the relationship between God and humanity um, inaugurated by the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, let's read on to the next sentence. Paul writes, um, we proclaim him, that is, uh, Paul proclaims Jesus and the, and the whole church proclaims Jesus, admonishing every person and teaching every person with all wisdom. Okay, that word wisdom is, is really important there. And then Paul goes on to say, so that we may present every person complete in Christ. 
So what Paul is saying is because of what Christ has accomplished, because of what Christ has done, um, we can have a reversal of, of uh, what happened in the garden. Whereas in the garden, desiring wisdom, human beings took from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. So now human beings can be restored to intimacy with God and in doing so learn wisdom, learn what is good and bad directly from God, exactly as they were always intended to do so. And just to make it really clear, um, Paul says this a third time and brings these two things together, brings this time of mystery or God's salvation plan for the whole of creation. Um, and also um, this idea of wisdom and human beings being taught to be wise by God. So he writes God's mystery, that is Christ himself, again, reiterating the fact that Christ is the salvation plan um, of of God, um, which was prophesied um, in chapter three of Genesis. So God's mystery, that is Christ in himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So again, this is, this is just to bring it all together and say um, the route to wisdom, the route to life in abundance is not through define, human beings defining what is good and bad for themselves. It is pursuing the tree of life. And it is pursuing Christ. Great. So hope, I, hopefully um, that has been exciting just to see the way um, that themes or symbols first introduced um, in the first few pages of the Bible are, are being developed on what in my Bible is like page a thousand. Um, and this sense of, of Paul being this like literary master continuing to develop themes which were present in the Hebrew Bible. But a really valid question and a really appropriate question to be asked is like, what does this mean practically? What does this mean for the way that we live our lives? And, and, and maybe to be more direct to the way in Paul's language, how do I develop wisdom and how do I receive Christ in me? And I just want to go back to the Genesis story and the garden. Um, so before Adam and Eve, there are two trees and there's a sense of a choice. A choice between the tree of life, um, which is God's presence, and a choice um, which is defining good and bad for ourselves. And the real truth is, um, I, I feel like that kind of choice is before me every day. And it's in really little things, maybe multiple times a day. It's in the little things I say. Um, it's in the things that I wish I really hadn't said, but I did. The jokes that really weren't funny, they were just hurtful. Um, the jokes which just really weren't honouring, they were just hurtful. Um, but maybe it's, it's also in the things that I wish I didn't speak out on. So the, the things that I wish I had spoke on, but I, spoke out on, but that I failed to do. And it's also in the big things. There have been points in my life where I, I just know really clearly I have chosen to define good and bad for myself. And ultimately that's led to a place of real pain for me. It's led to a point of real kind of uh, feeling interior death, a death of self for me. And I've been lucky that I've had people around me who have just loved me, almost loved me back to life. And I've been lucky that, that God has done that as well. And I think these experiences and my take on this is so often that I feel that, um, that the, the choice hits me without me even knowing about it. Very rarely do I have any warning. It's just some, some 
somehow there's a situation in the day, often when I'm not even anticipating it, and I have this choice. Um, and I, I wonder why, why do I choose, even when I don't want to, um, to, to, to choose to define good and bad for myself? Or why, why do I do what I don't want to do and that I know is hurtful? What, one possible answer for that is that um, I need, just need to try harder. Um, but my experience has been that is not where life lies. Um, the, there is an appropriateness in seeking what is good. There is an appropriateness um, in being intentional. Um, but I've actually found that real transformation has not come about simply from me trying harder. Um, but the, the two places of transformation and the two places of change that I felt in me, one has been in prayer and the other has been in community. My, um, just as I've been, it happens that in the run up to um, this talk, a regular prayer that I've had in my, in my kind of own times of prayer with God has been, um, please make me more loving. Um, please make me more patient and please make me more kind. I would like a heart which better resembles um, the love and the goodness of God. Um, and I feel like that prayer, me bringing myself to God and just saying, um, like, please give me that heart. Um, please let me define, or please let you, please let God show me what is good and bad. Um, and I believe that that prayer is transformational. Uh, and it happened, it doesn't, well, sometimes it happens in an instant and that is beautiful and glorious when that happens. But I've often also had times of transformation and growth and change which have happened over seasons, which have happened over weeks or months, maybe even years. But I, I want to keep praying that prayer because I just want that. Um, I, I want a heart that better resembles um, God's. The other learning I feel that I've had is that community is a place of transformation. So I learned, I think quite painfully, that um, I, couldn't, I couldn't pursue God, I couldn't pursue the tree of life by myself. Um, I wasn't strong enough to do it in my own strength. Um, not only did I need God's, God's support and God's strength and God's love, but I, I've also felt that community has been a place where people have borne burdens with me. Um, I've needed a community where I can be vulnerable, where I can come just as I am and still experience something of their love. And I think in that there's been a revelation more of who God's, or more of a revelation of God's love. And for me, that community has been um, a connect group. So a midweek group run by Christchurch London, um, where people meet together um, to, pursue, in a, to provide a safe environment to pursue God more deeply. Um, and it's a place of love and encounter. So I'm not sure what that means for you. Maybe that means joining, joining one of our midweek groups. Um, if that is for you, um, just a link will appear along the bottom of the screen. But maybe actually um, is for you the application of this is prayer. Um, and that could be a time of prayer um, in the mornings. Um, it could be just five minutes before breakfast, five minutes before lunch, five minutes before dinner. Let like prayer time structure the day. I think that, that there's just something of so much of beauty in that. But what, whatever your application is, um, know that like you are not doing this by yourself. 
Um, there is a church community here who wants to and is willing to walk the journey with you, who loves you and wants to be part of that. And more, even more than that, there is the, there is the creator God loves you and is walking this with you. And God's love is never ending. I just wanted to, to finish by just praying that, praying that over us and then we'll go into a time of worship. Uh, God, we just want to thank you for um, the children of God that you've raised up around us to walk this road with us. We thank you for your love never ending and never failing. God, for those who are doubting that, for those who um, are seeking a fresh encounter with that, I just pray that you would gently pour out your spirit on them. Lord, for those who need to, that they would weep and it would all be well with them. Uh, God, I just pray that your spirit would fall as we worship you now. Lord, in your name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this talk from the Christchurch London podcast. To hear other talks or find out more about our Sunday services, head to ChristchurchLondon.org.